In the two towers, Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn are traveling through Rohan, and they mention hobbits or halflings. One of the writers laughs at them and says, Halflings? But they are only a little people in songs and children's tales out of the north. Do we walk in legends or on the green earth in the daylight? And Aragorn responds, A man may do both. For not we, but those who come after will make the legends of our time. The green earth, say you. That is a mighty matter of legend, though you tread it under the light of day. That's Tolkien, The Two Towers. Welcome to This is the End. I'm your host, the pop mythologist. Last episode, I talked about a couple of films from the genre of cli-fi, The Day After Tomorrow and Twister and how they could potentially be used to make the threat of climate change feel much more real and immediate for people, as well as, in the case of Twister, to get past their political and ideological defenses. Today we'll be talking about how speculative worlds in multiple genres, such as cli-fi and fantasy, can inspire us to take care of the real world. And take care of means not just ecologically, but societally as well. And I have a guest to help me do this. Her name is Dr. Serena Higgins, And she's a professor of literature at Signum University, as well as a sustainability and social justice activist. Dr. Higgins is also going to tell us about TextMoot, a speculative fiction conference. And there's going to be an exciting opportunity for all you fantasy and sci-fi fans out there who are also passionate about sustainability and social justice to share some of your thoughts and ideas with a larger community of like-minded people. So let's get to that interview. So we are here with Serena Higgins. Before we talk about the conference, could you start by telling us first a little bit about yourself as an individual and what you do? Sure. Thank you very much. Well, I have just finished a PhD in English literature at Baylor University in Texas. And I'm also on the faculty of Signum University, which is a born digital native online institution. And I teach some courses there for them. And I study the Inklings, modern literature. I also study William Butler Yeats and the occult revival and magic in modern literature. And then I'm the coordinator of a Signum regional conference coming up in Texas, which is our main topic today. Indeed it is. But first of all, let me say, wow, that is a cool background. That is so cool. Thank you. (laughs) So yes, please do tell us about the conference itself. Uh, First, the conference in general, and then specifically this year's conference and the theme of it, as well as, of course, the call for submission that you recently put out and what kinds of submissions you're looking for. And please tell us about all of that. Thank you. Delighted to do so. Well, since Signum University is only online, before the pandemic, we decided we needed to have regional meetings where we could get together with other people in three dimensions, offline, (laughs) for real human fellowship. So we began these regional gatherings called moots. And that word comes from the Old English, and it's after Tolkien's name for the Ent moots, which was the gathering of the tree herds in the two towers. So that's also relevant to the theme that we'll get to. So we have these annual regional gatherings. Well, since the pandemic, they've been only online, and now they're going to be hybrid events so that people who cannot travel can also attend these these regional conferences online. So ours is called Tex Moot, 
Signum University's annual Texas Language and Literature Symposium is the full name. And the idea is that we get together for one day to talk about literature, language, film, and pop culture, and more. This one is coming up on March 26th, 2022 in Austin, Texas, and as I said, also online. And the theme is Starships, Stewards, and Storytellers, How Imaginary Worlds Teach Us to Care for This One. So it's primarily an eco-critical or environmental approach, looking at how science fiction and fantasy and other literature and imaginary worlds have lessons in them for how to take care of our own planet, but also beyond exclusively environmental concerns, also perhaps how we can learn to care for immigrants, for ethnic and racial others, for those who are economically marginalized or oppressed, or any other number of ways that we can care for the people, the planet, and the future that we see enacted in science fiction and fantasy and literature and other media. So yes, there's a call for proposals. We'll be taking a very small number of regular academic papers, like 15-minute talks, and then the rest will be super short flash presentations, five-minute conversation starters, so that everyone can then be inspired to join into conversations together. And those proposals are due by March 1st. And everyone can find those at textmoot.org, T-E-X-M-O-O-T dot org. So there's a bit of an overview for you. Thank you. To be clear, the submissions you are looking for would be from academics and scholars, correct? Not just the general public? We welcome all kinds of people. We certainly would love to hear from academics and scholars. We also want to hear from emerging or aspiring academics and also really passionate amateurs and fans who have investigated these subjects and who, who love studying literature and pop culture as a, as a side field or as a, a hobby, even if it's not their main career. Oh, wow. That is wonderfully inclusive and so very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, these, we, we like these events to be sort of a combination of academic conference and fan con. And so then naturally, then this also extends to attendance, right? So not just the people will be presenting, but attendance would also include potential academics, but also general public. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And I know I've mentioned Tolkien a lot, but that is absolutely, we're absolutely not just looking at his works. We're looking at any works that explore these themes, whether it's classic literature or whether it's a brand new piece of anime or whether it's gaming or the visual arts. And we're also interested in the linguistic side of things as well. And yeah, the attendees will be invited to participate in the conversations. We'll have these roundtable discussions where someone will give a, a real quick five minute teaser sort of talk and then everyone will jump in and join the conversation. As I understand it, you're also co-editing a volume of essays with the same theme for this year's conference. Could you tell us about that as well? That's right. So the book is tentatively entitled, I don't know if we're going to stick with this title or not, but I've kind of come to love it. It's tentatively entitled Gardeners of the Galaxies, How Imaginary Worlds Teach Us to Care for This One. And I will be co-editing that with my colleague, Dr. Brenton Dickison who is in Prince Edward Island, also works at Signum, and has a PhD in the imaginative theology of C.S. Lewis. So this book is sort of a subset of the text theme because it's focused 
pretty narrowly on the eco-critical side, the environmental side of what we can learn from fantasy literature. I'm toying with another freeze idea title. I'm sure you've seen those memes and signs and bumper stickers that say there is no planet B, right? Which is a super, super important message, obviously. We can't just burn up this planet and then, oh, I don't know, go terraform Mars, for instance. <laughs> but literature makes us ponder, what if there is a planet to be? Does that even really solve the problem? Does that then take away from us the moral obligation to care for the planet that we are on? Or what would be the ethical implications if there were a planet B? Should we just go there and trash it the way we're trashing this one? So that's another kind of phrase that I have kicking around the back of my mind as I'm pondering this new subject to study. Thank you for bringing those up because I think about those questions a lot. And I actually want to come back to them in just a bit and ask you about them further. But just very quickly, do you already have all the essays that you need for this volume or are you looking for submissions for that as well? We are at the very, very beginning stages. We're actually still drafting the call for papers and we might put that out in conjunction with TextMoot because we're hoping that people might try out the germ of an idea at the conference and then go on to write a more large scale proposal for us. So no, the call for papers will be coming out for the volume later this spring. And then we will begin the long, slow process of collecting and editing those. Then it will be an academic volume. It will be a peer-reviewed scholarly book. However, we really want it to be written in a lively and engaging and accessible way. And since it is studying things like genre fiction, quote unquote, it may have a slightly larger appeal. And we're also pondering whether we could include a few very carefully curated creative works, such as some works of visual art, poetry, perhaps a short story or a, a brief essay, maybe to punctuate the volume, to divide up the sections. And we would like it to be a beautiful book, a beautiful object as well with a, a lovely cover so that it kind of enacts these principles of really caring for the precious resources that we have, including people's creativity and intellectual investigations. That sounds wonderful. Now that you've told us about the conference and the volume of essays that you're working on, I was wondering if we could also just talk about some of the themes of the conference. And uh, I was looking at the description of the conference and the call for submissions on the website. And there were some interesting questions posed there as a way to, I think, just kind of get people thinking, get their creative juices flowing. And as part of that, I was wondering if you and I could kind of discuss some of those questions for a bit. And I'd be curious about your own personal thoughts on some of these questions. Would that be okay? Let's do it. Okay. So regarding this theme of speculative worlds that teach us to care for this one, a big part of your work relates to the Inklings, which is the group of writers of whom J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were members. Uh, I personally am not super familiar with the other members of the group, but as far as Lewis and Tolkien are concerned, do you feel that their works characterize the kind of work that you mean when you say speculative worlds that teach us to care for this one? Well, that's an excellent question. I think they are among those that characterize it, but they by no means exhaust the possibilities. And they are maybe not even the primary or the best examples. 
Tolkien is extremely concerned with this planet, with the green earth, as we heard in that quote. He was in love with the grass and the landscape, but also animals and even trees. He cared for individual trees as persons and grieved for them when they were murdered and their bodies were left to rot. And his Ents and his Elves and his Hobbits do care for the planet in ways that we can learn from. And they each exemplify a different type of, of ecosystem. So we could get into that if we want to. Um, C.S. Lewis has some aspects we could delve into. However, it might be even more relevant for this conference or for the subsequent book to look at the emerging and burgeoning genre of cli-fi or climate fiction. So there are newer works that tackle these questions much more directly. You can certainly find them in older works of literature, but right now so many authors are honestly living in the pressure of this crisis that how could they help but write about it? So I could see that you are nodding very vigorously. You're really, you're really into that yourself, yes? Well, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, so could you go ahead and just talk a little bit about perhaps more contemporary authors who are doing this kind of stuff? Could be cli-fi, it could be even just something as traditional as medieval fantasy, but that sort of symbolically addresses some of these issues. Who are some authors who are active now that you would point to as being prominent examples of this kind of stuff? Yeah. One of the most important in my mind is Kim Stanley Robinson and a just maybe the most perfect example of the sort of thing we're talking about is his Red Mars book. So we have these um, these explorers who go to Mars and colonize Mars, these 100 scientists. And there's an incredibly memorable and moving chapter in the book when two characters, a geologist and another scientist, have a debate about whether or not to terraform Mars. And they each give an impassioned speech uh, supporting his or her position. And the geologist speaks her position that you must not mar this natural beauty. And she just waxes eloquent in almost an, a passion of ecstasy about how gorgeous the untouched Martian landscape is and the untouched ecosystems. And as I was reading it, I was almost weeping. Don't spoil this. Don't ravage this landscape. And then the other character gives an equally impassioned speech about how we need to change this landscape and that it's a beautiful, creative thing for humans to go and reshape what they touch. And um, now this is another thing I think you want to talk about, another question, which is, are these works ever sort of preachy, right? Do they ever cross the line to be didactic? I think Robinson is a really good example of when it does not cross that line in that passage because it's the characters speaking. It's not the author. And both perspectives are given and they're given in ways that are woven into the, the narrative, the shape of the novel, and they are consistent with these characters' personalities this is the kind of conversation that would happen at this point in the story. So there's one really profound example. I can give a few more, but I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that one a bit more first. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, another question that immediately comes to mind is this whole question of being overly or being perceived as overly preachy or crossing the line into propaganda. 
What do you think are the key factors that determine whether it does cross over into that line? The most important factor is the artistic excellence. If the work is excellently done in its genre, <laughs> and if the writer, artist, filmmaker is absolutely committed to that craft, then I do not think that's much of a, much of a danger. So works that are perhaps less well thought through, less well crafted, maybe the creator is not as experienced, I think are more in danger of crossing that line, things that are created too hastily. So another example, I can't remember the author, but there's a book called The Beast of Cretacea that's a retelling of Moby Dick and for a YA audience on another planet. Absolutely fascinating, super fun read, but it has some serious flaws of narrative construction. And the idea is that Earth has become almost uninhabitable and no longer produces any food. So the Earthlings send their teenagers to this other fertile planet to kill these beasts and ship their meat back to Earth so that the Earthlings can eat. So it's really kind of in your face. Like, if we don't change something, this is what's going to have to happen because Earth will be totally uninhabitable. And there are these kind of look at your heartstream scene of like, do it for the children. So that's maybe an example of when the, the technical craft doesn't quite carry the message. <laughs> It's still a fun read, though. Let's talk a little bit about intention. So it seems that conventional wisdom suggests that one should always begin with the intention, above all, to tell a good story, and that if in the process of telling a good story, if you happen to have a really powerful and compelling message, then so much the better. But I sometimes wonder about that. And again, you pointed to, you know, like artistic skill and merit. And so long as that skill and ability is there, do you feel like an artist could start with the intention of, I am really passionate about this message. I really want to convey it in a way that people can really feel and that can translate into behavioral changes of various kinds. And so I am starting with this, like the message is the starting point. Do you feel that as, as long as the skill is there, that the story is not going to be sabotaged by that dominating intention of trying to put that message through. Wow, that's a good question. I mean, probably, because I think that there are likely as many good ways of writing as there are good writers. <laughs> I don't think there's just like one good way to write. Um, I get a little nervous when I hear that the message comes first, but Let's talk about another example. Now, this one is not so much for the environmental message as it is for a message about racial justice. And this is Octavia Butler's Kindred. Talk about a work that generically is a time travel adventure, right? But like, that is not what you remember about that book. What you remember about that book is the brutality of the racism that the main character encounters. Now, I don't know Octavia Butler's uh, modus operandi. I don't know her order of operations. Um, did she say, I'm going to write a book about slavery first? Or did she say, I'm going to write a time travel story first? But they're, they're utterly integrated in the work. There's no way the message, quote unquote, overwhelms the book. And there's no way that the time travel subsumes the tale of reason. They're perfectly united. They're perfectly integrated because she's just that good. 
yeah. So I don't know if I'm ready to make like <laughs> a big pronouncement about it, <laughs> but I know that it it can be done well, right? A work that is very issues oriented can reach a letter a level of literary mastery. Another question I had that I thought of when you were talking about terraforming. Do you feel that certain themes or tropes in fiction, if they become overly common or dominant, can potentially be harmful? And I want to give an example of what I mean. So like, and this example comes from film, not literature, but you'll get the idea. So the film is Interstellar, which personally I love. I love that film. It's beautiful film and I really enjoyed it. And this is going to come from the plot synopsis, so it's not a spoiler for anyone listening. Don't worry. But part of the premise is that the Earth is dying and a group of astronauts go searching for somewhere in the galaxy where there might be a new planet that humanity can inhabit. Uh, again, I love this movie, but I kind of feel like there might be this potential danger of when this idea of we're going to leave Earth becomes overly popular and just kind of dominates people's imagination, right? And it becomes almost taken for granted, like, yeah, that's gonna, it's a foregone conclusion, that's what's gonna happen. And so instead of doing everything possible to save this Earth, again, there's no planet B, right? I mean, terraforming is one thing that sounds really cool, but when we think about how difficult that could potentially be, I mean, yeah, it makes for compelling fiction, but as far as actually happening in reality, that's another thing. So do you feel that sometimes certain ideas, when they become overly popular, um, and this is kind of interesting because the better the story is, like Interstellar is a great movie. So I feel like it, it almost makes you want, like, yeah, our future is in the stars. What are your thoughts on the potential dangers of this? That might be a potential danger. However, there are so many people who still need to be convinced this is even a problem. I hail from a subculture that has not yet acknowledged the seriousness of the climate crisis. So I would be happy for them to be reading books and watching films about that subject every day to try to try to get that message home. But I suppose what you're talking about could be a theoretical danger. But then historically, we get different cycles of works of art when themes are really popular and then they kind of die off again and they'll come back when they're needed, when they're fresh again. So we're also, as another example, we're also in a superhero moment right now, right? When it's just a glut of superhero films and they're kind of taking over the box office. When we've dealt with our need for heroes and our desire for clearer views of right and wrong, <laughs> that particular genre will, will probably die down for a generation and come back again when it's needed. Those are, those are my sort of unformed thoughts. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's totally fine. If I may just pursue this slightly further one moment, and the example of superheroes is also a great example. Like, I feel like they, I love superheroes and I've written and spoken about them so much, but I feel like there's this potential danger there as well where, because stories are powerful. They really go deep into our unconscious. And I feel like you watch something like Avengers Endgame or just superhero stories in general where no matter how dire the danger, somebody comes in and saves us. So I feel like it can potentially kind of contribute to this unconscious sense, not a conscious thought, but an unconscious assumption that somebody will come up with something to save us rather than the more 
important need for us collectively to all take responsibility and come together mm. to save ourselves. And I guess that's what I was talking about with respect to a film like Interstellar, where I worry that people start to assume that, you know, uh, colonizing space is a foregone conclusion that it's guaranteed to happen that we'll be able to come up with the technology and the means to do so. And therefore, we can just continue plundering the earth and not really worry about taking action because the scientists and the technology whizzes will figure it out. I hear you. And that might be a concern. I know there are some literary scholars who are worried that encountering a theme too many times can desensitize us to it, or we can spend the time fantasizing rather than doing anything about it. Yeah. But let me throw a question back at you in response and see what you think of this one. When you watch a superhero, Phil, who, who are you in the narrative? Are you one of the hapless humans who needs to be saved? Or are you imagining yourself as the superhero and do you end the story like kind of motivated, I want to do something to save the world? Great question. And in fact, <laughs> my entire blog, popmythology.com, and the column that I have, have on it, so I'm both a writer and a podcaster, and the column that I have on my blog has been precisely about this very thing where we are the heroes and we have to take responsibility and step up and use our own inherent talents and gifts to contribute. And it can be, it doesn't have to be in epic ways like in conventional superhero stories. I tend to really love the heroes that symbolize the, you know, the every man, so to speak, or the every person rather, such as someone like Spider-Man who kind of has that mythology of the every person. Mm. So yeah, I'm big on that, but I am part of the reason why I've written so much about this is that I don't know that that's always automatically conveyed and received in that way by all audiences. And so I feel that commentary, things like your conference, things like my podcast or my blog uh, can help in that regard with, you know, like encouraging people like this is about you. This is your heroic story. You are Frodo, you know, or you are Spider-Man and yes, not the good. sort of bystander who's helpless to whatever threat may be, you know. That's really, really good. Yeah, that's why maybe the Frodo Baggins kind of hero is more useful because he is the stand-in for you, the reader. He is the one who thinks, I'm a nobody, I can do nothing. What is all, what is going on in this larger world? He feels disoriented and absolutely inadequate. And, uh-oh, spoiler alert, he is inadequate. He fails in the end, and yet he is used as one part of this huge heroic story that, like you said, does take everyone working together. It takes all the free nations of the world gathering together and making enormous sacrifices in order to fight off an evil that was blighting the planet, an evil that was creating a wasteland. And what do they do when they win? They plant gardens, they plant trees, they plant flowers, and they start regenerating the, the ecosystems around them. That is beautiful. Yeah, I love that. May I ask you a potentially challenging question? Please. So I am personally very passionate about this idea of the power of narrative and stories to affect positive behavioral changes in the real world, potentially. And yet, despite this, sometimes I do try to step back and kind of challenge myself on this and think, okay, you know, there have been so many amazing stories throughout history about this kind of thing 
you know, speculative worlds that teach us to care for this one. Despite so many wonderful stories and worlds, imaginative worlds that do this, when we look around the current state of things, and I'm thinking here specifically about climate change, but we could point to any number of other urgent societal issues, clearly it hasn't been enough. And so with respect to this idea of speculative worlds teaching us to care for this one, if you were to imagine an ideal dream world where fiction could really, on a much wider scale, help people understand, again, how to better care for this world, what would this world look like for you? You know, it's a big question, so you're not going to obviously be able to answer every part of it, but just maybe if you could give us a, a little sense of that. Wow. <laughs> That's a beautiful question. It is a challenging one. Well, first, in this world, wouldn't everyone need access to these works of literature? And I don't mean just physical access, although you need that to begin with, right? You need the circulation of the texts in a physical or a digital format. You need literacy. You need a certain level of education for these texts even to be accessible. And then, honestly, if you've taken cultures and you've... <laughs> You've raised people out of poverty and out of uh, drudgery of labor enough that they have access to education, that they are literate. Well, you've already made a lot of progress, even without bringing in works of speculative fiction. That's already a lot of progress. So I, th I think that education and economic improvements and things like fighting food insecurity and things like dealing with the migration crisis are probably more important than like everyone needs to watch Star Wars and think about the moisture farms on Tatooine or something like that, honestly. And yes, I'm an English professor and a writer and passionate about literature, but I don't think it's enough on its own. And that's why we have conferences to talk about it, to take what's in the book or on the screen and bring it down into life. And that's why you do a podcast and write a column. And that's why I'm editing a book. And that's why I host a group called Daily Choices, where we meet and we talk about little things that we can do on a daily basis to try to care for people, the planet, and the future, um, to take it out of the speculative realm. And I have one other example, but I can, I can see from your face that maybe you wanted to pause there and talk about that a little bit for a minute. I was wondering if you could tell people where they can find this group. What did you call it? Daily Choices. Yes. So if folks just go to my website, SorinaHiggins.com, there is a page there called Daily Choices. And I tend to tweet about it. Um, so it's just a weekly group. Right now we're meeting on Wednesday afternoons. And we talk about things like recycling, reducing waste, composting, it, increasing your impact by using your power as a consumer and a voter. So we talk about really, really practical things. So anyone is welcome to contact me on any social media channel and I will give them the Zoom info. They're welcome to join. But if I may, so the next project I want to do after this co-edited volume with Brenton is, is an as yet untitled book that has something, maybe a subtitle of poetry as practical ecology. So what I want to do is take poems, classic poems and more recent ones that mention things in the non-human environment and put the poem on the page and then write a little reflection 
Okay, so for instance, Hopkins, gorgeous little poem, Pied Beauty. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire, cold chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow. Okay, so Hopkins is paying intimate attention to these details, to like the warts on the side of a fish. <laughs> and he's like, he's elevating them with his poetic language. So I want to write meditations on those, but then also look at, well, is there anything in this piece of literature that actually has practical application? And he has that line, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow. Now, whether or not Hopkins had this in mind, there are two permaculture principles in there. <laughs> One is polyculture. If the landscape is plotted and pieced, it means we're not looking out at a vast monocrop in this poem. You're looking at a Victorian landscape with small fields, each of which has a different crop. And then the second is just that little word in passing, fold, fallow, and plow. Yes, they're tilling, but they leave the land fallow on a rotation cycle. So they're practicing regenerative agriculture just out of their own economic necessities and their own material culture, right? Like they're not doing it for some kind of hipster postmodern reason, <laughs> but they're probably planting cover crops. And so the soil is healthy. So I would love to like write a little meditation of that nature and then end each one with a practical application. Like if you are a farmer, use polyculture and leave your land fat a little on the appropriate rotation. So that's kind of a crazy thing. I don't know if this is what eco-critics do, but I would love to do this project. This is right <laughs> down my alley. You are like the perfect guest for this podcast because you're obviously, oh, wow. you're obviously a big literature nerd, but you're also an yep. activist. And that's what I try to do here is I try to bring these worlds together and make them one and the same. And that is a perfect, beautiful example of that. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for indulging, <laughs> indulging me in that. <laughs> so as we're coming towards the end of this interview, could you once again tell people where they can submit their ideas for the presentations yes. or papers for the conference? Yep, absolutely. So go to textmoot.org and there's a whole page with all the information, the date, the place. And then there's a CFP tab where you can submit your proposal for either an academic presentation or a short conversation starter. Just to reiterate what I said earlier, we're only going to accept a few academic presentations because it's just a one-day event, but we, we do want a lot of these lively conversation starters. And then just look out for me on social media for when Brenton and I eventually publish the CFP for the book. And then someday in the future, uh, if the Lord tarries, this other project on poetry as practical ecology. Well, speaking of finding you on the internet, where can people find you? So they can find me, SerenaHiggins.com, S-O-R-I-N-A-H-I-G-G-I-N-S.com, and also on Instagram and Twitter at Serena Higgins. Serena Higgins, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a really great pleasure. And I'll, I'll sign off with a phrase from the writer that I study the most, Charles Williams, who would tell people to go under the mercy. What does that mean? Uh, he would use the mercy as a phrase to mean kind of like 
God or than a supreme being or the divine power, but he would want you to, as you travel, to be under that mercy, that you're protected by that mercy. Ah, that is beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm, thanks. And there you have it. Hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm the pop mythologist, and until next time, go under the mercy. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please subscribe, and if you're willing, share one of these episodes on social media. And if your chosen podcast platform allows reviews, like Apple Podcasts, I invite you to leave a review as well. Thank you.